0: this BizNow podcast is brought to you by industrious
1: if you think the debate on the future of the office is just about the logical part of your job the actual work you're in for a rude awakening
2: so much of the future of work strategies the work reinvention strategies are about uh the rational parts of work
1: that's brian cropp chief of hr research at consultancy firm gartner he's in touch with thousands of hr professionals across the world And he thinks a lot of companies, as they plan how they're going to work after the pandemic, are asking the wrong questions. They need to get more
2: irrational. How are we gonna get work done? Who is gonna be sitting where? Which office are we gonna keep open? Uh, What is the technology we're gonna use? Those sorts of really important, but very rational questions that are out there. You have to ask yourself a question like, why do people go into an office?
3: Why do people go into an office? It's a question that, before the pandemic, few people really asked. They just did it, because that's what they'd always done. Or because, as Krop said, that's where all the equipment white-collar workers needed to do their jobs was housed. Now that all you need is a laptop and a phone, that argument is no longer enough. But the reason people go into an office is about more than just work. As Krop points out, Offices are a place where the rational, day-to-day act of getting your job done happens. But because they're full of people, they're places where the deeply irrational parts of human behaviour show themselves too. They're places where we learn about and define who we are, through the work we do and how successful we are at it. They're places of friendship, of romance and sex, competition, rivalry, boredom, sometimes even hatred. Places where stupid managers oppress us, good bosses uplift us places of victory and defeat. So what happens to us, as people, to our culture, when we're no longer heading into the office eight hours a day, five days a week? That's what we're asking today on BizNow's Office Politics, the battle for the future of work. I'm Mike Phillips, BizNow's UK editor.
1: And I'm Miriam Hall, BizNow's New York City reporter. To stay relevant and draw people in, offices, the companies that occupy them and the people that build and own them are going to need to embrace the fact that they're more than just about work.
3: In 2020 and 2021, something strange happened. Forced to take a break from the office, people started to reevaluate not just where they worked, but how they felt about work itself.
4: What we wanted to better understand was how did the shift to remote impact people's way of working their perceptions of work, as well as what practices, policies and tools had organizations implemented that were working and were not working.
3: That's Sheila Submaranian, Senior Director at the Future Forum, a think tank backed by, among other companies, Slack, the digital messaging firm.
4: So we've conducted this research quarterly over the last year. And based on our latest wave of research, we're seeing that after 17 months of working through the pandemic, employees are restless. So more than half, 56%, are open and looking for a new job in the next year.
3: It seems that since we've been liberated from the office, the place that the average white-collar worker used to do all of their work, people have started to reimagine what their lives could be. Companies and people who own, lease and sell office real estate talk about how the office is a great way of instilling corporate culture. And Slack's findings certainly seem to back that up, to the point where the office is almost a means of control. Once you're freed from the sight of that corporate culture, you start to imagine your life beyond it.
5: As businesses reopen and the economy takes off, employees have options.
3: This is a moment
2: of employee empowerment, worker empowerment that we haven't seen for a long time. Workplace experts are predicting a post-pandemic resignation boom. New data signals the great resignation, as some are calling it, is real and may be happening sooner than expected. Has the past year forced you into rethinking your career? If so, you're not alone. In the United States, more workers are quitting their jobs than at any time in the past two decades.
1: And the change that's been precipitated is not just about people asking, which company do you work for? They're asking, what is the role I want work to play in my life? I think a lot of people were seeing...
5: the the lie at the heart of this larger understanding that like work will save you in some way because it won't right it won't save you from precarity and it won't save you from emotional adriftness it won't save you from loneliness like it's not gonna it's not gonna save you from anything
1: author and journalist Anne helen peterson wrote the 2019 viral buzzfeed article how millennials became the burnout generation which has been read by more than 7 million people Along the way, it became part of the fractious generational debate between baby boomers and millennials. What Peterson identified in the piece was the way in which work had overtaken the lives of a generation of people under 40. The need to optimise yourself and succeed in your career began to occupy every waking minute and became the defining element of how you saw yourself. It wasn't enough to just do a job in order to have a nice life. That job had to say something about who you are as well. The sheer relentlessness of that way of existence was causing workers to burn out, she said, and companies exploited that to their own benefit, creating something of a toxic relationship between companies and staff. But that attitude was changing pre-pandemic, and that change is now accelerating.
5: I think that what people are doing is not only examining their personal burnout behaviors and habits, but also recognizing that the only way to fix them besides working on themselves is to actually switch either industries or switch jobs. And so I think that's why you're seeing a lot of people quitting their jobs. They're deciding, well, I'm out of here, right? Like I can't continue with this. Um, Can't live my life like this for the rest of my life. And so I think that's what you're seeing in terms of a, a more overarching shift so part of it is 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 recognizing that like no even like a solid two week vacation it's not going to fix the problems that I have here. They are micro in terms of the personal and also the the relationships with managers and individuals at the company and the expectations at the company, and they're macro in terms of. Funding for an industry, the, the way that an industry is or is not appreciated societally, and then also just like the placement of the particular worker within the larger
1: schema of capitalism. For Peterson, the physical real estate in which people worked was a manifestation of the fact that people now believe work is the only thing in their life. And there's a chance that the switch to remote work increases the sense of precarity workers feel and the ability of companies to exploit them.
5: I think that those cool offices were reflective of cool jobs. And so even if you didn't have the stability of (laughs) being paid a living wage, you could still brag about your job and your job had social currency. I think that's disappearing. I really do. I think that that was happening even before the pandemic and then the pandemic kind of underlined it that no amount of cool job is, is worth that sort of exploitation And I think one thing that you do see happening now with companies as they're grappling with what the future of work is, they're really like those companies, part of the reason they had cool offices was because they were paying their employees very little, right? They are incredibly cognizant of cost-cutting measures. So they're going to be the first to go remote. They don't give a crap about people being in an actual office. And so you're going to see decreases in those perks, and those companies are probably going to just go to freelance models, which are much more uh, cost efficient, but also create even more precarious scenarios for the worker. So I think like, this is why you see unionization efforts happening all over the media in the United States, right? They're like, yeah, sure, I have my dream job as a journalist, but it's not worth the precarity of this industry.
3: So what is the office's psychological appeal? The thing that falls outside the realm of the rational which draws people into the office. The office means different things to different people at different times of their lives. A common refrain when talking to people who worked in offices pretty much every day before the pandemic is that if you're further advanced in your career, working from home is a big benefit. You know how to do your job, you've got your network in place, you've built up your social capital. But for those starting out on their careers the office is a pretty important tool in learning how to do your job. Here's Ollie, who works in accountancy in London.
0: So I've been working where I'm currently working for four or five years. So I'm now at a point where I'm managing teams and I'm one of the more senior people on each of my engagements. And I guess that has been a bit of a godsend as far as working from home has been concerned because... I don't really need to lean over and ask too many questions or I don't need someone to lean over to my sort of screen and show me too many things anymore. I mean, there's the odd thing, of course, but by and large, I can just get on with my day. Whereas for juniors, from a work perspective, I think they've really struggled and, and, and understandably Because they haven't had that face-to-face interaction, it's a lot scarier to pick up the phone and call your senior Mm. rather than sort of catch their eye and say, do you mind coming and having a look at this? And even guiding someone through something is is nowhere near as easy through screen share as it is face-to-face. But it's not just
3: about learning how to do your job. For younger workers, coming into an office can be just as much about learning who you are as a person and what it's like to operate in the adult world. Here's Ollie again
0: when you go to your first ever job fresh out of uni or or fresh out of school I don't know if most people are the same but I found it incredibly nerving like nervous and I didn't really know what to expect I didn't know if my my colleagues would be very sort of serious and 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 sort of strict and and there'd be no sort of you know banter or or general chit chat or or, or whether they'd all sort of be like me and and be in the same situation be nervous and then once you Mm. you break down that nervy barrier it, it becomes a lot more sort of friendly and 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 going to the office for me was incredibly important because you really get a feel for people at work want to get the job done, but are all just happy, similar people who who, who you know, want to get to know you and, and want to be your friend. And and I feel like for me, that's I know that now. And so therefore, working from home has been quite simple because I, I know what to expect from people around me, but Again, on the sort of junior topic, I think it must be really tough to have that, to not be able to so quickly sort of dispel those nerves. You can't really get a feel for it as, as easily on Zoom and Skype.
1: Ollie pointed out that like a whole lot of white collar workers, he met a big chunk of his circle of friends at his place of work, his housemates, even his girlfriend. Ah yes, love and sex. Say the word office and one of the first words that immediately springs to mind is romance. The office doesn't necessarily set out to be a place that creates intimacy between workers and in the wake of the revelations that continue to emerge in many sectors of business as a result of the Me Too movement, many workplaces have sought to ensure that staff do not face harassment. But the office can't help but be a romantic and passionate environment. Consider this. Recent studies in both the US and UK found that about a fifth of people met their current or most recent partner at work. Jess Alderson is the co-founder of dating app So Synced, which uses the Myers-Briggs personality test to
6: try and match its users with ideal partners. I don't think many people go into the office and think, right, I'm going to find a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever here today, you know, um, it tends to be a bit like slower and a bit more, I guess, you know, sometimes it's quite the opposite, to be honest, like sometimes people really don't want to date people in the office, I think that's fairly common, but you know, they end up spending a lot of time together and they realize that they actually get on really well. We probably have things in common because they're working together or working in the same office at least. Um, so yeah, it just kind of happens in a slightly different way really, and, and probably over a much longer time period. But there's another side to all of this. People discussing the future of the
1: office and why offices will retain a role and appeal tend to focus on the positive elements But it's not all cake in the break room, World Cup sweepstakes or March Madness brackets and workplace trysts. As we heard in our previous episodes, academic studies have shown that when it comes to getting a promotion, showing face is key, and those who come into the office less are often less likely to get promoted. For some people, the office is a deeply competitive place, where if people want to advance up the corporate ladder, they are competing against their co-workers for a limited number of promotions. Competition, promotion, the thrill of the chase. For some people, you just have to be in the room for that to be worthwhile. One New York City investment banker I spoke to who didn't want his name or his voice in the podcast told me he's been back at the office pretty much full-time since September. He likes it. He likes the break between work and home. He likes the chance to collaborate. And lately, he's noticed a bit of a sense of, well, where are all these people who have been working remotely? What have they been doing? Why haven't they made the effort to come in and maybe just say hello to their colleagues? It's like they're taking names, is the turn of phrase he used. And he knows that on some level, if you're in the right room, at the right time, when something's happening, then you're the one on the deal. You're the one that gets the promotion or the perk, maybe.
3: It's not just rivalry you might feel with the people you work with. You might actively dislike them. And there's one person you may dislike more than anyone else. Your boss. Yes, we need to talk about bosses. Managers have a bad rep, one they have more than earned. The behaviour of managers is one of the most common reasons why people quit a job. The world of work has a boss problem, and that's been growing for years, but is now going to come out into the open. Now that the physical space in which we do our job is changing, the way managers behave is going to have to change as well. The situation can be broken down into that opposition we heard about earlier between the rational and irrational side of the world of work and human nature. On the rational side, there's the issue of how your boss knows whether you're doing your job or not. It's interesting to take a little detour through the history of how white-collar workers have been managed. As Nicol Saval makes clear in his book Cubed, A History of the Office... At the end of the 19th and start of the 20th centuries, offices were often small spaces attached to factories or warehouses, where the paperwork created by the manufacturers or importers got done, or small clerks' offices attached to the rooms of a lawyer or accountant. Think Bob Cratchit in Dickens' A Christmas Carol. But as the size of businesses grew, so did the staff needed to administer them and complete the growing mountains of paperwork they created. Offices became detached from industry, and started to become a type of building in their own right, often in city centres far from the physical labour with which they were previously intertwined. But while they moved away from factories, farms and warehouses, offices took the management practice of the factory floor with them. Taylorism, a system invented in the late 19th century to make sure that factory workers didn't goof off, was gleefully implemented by companies in offices as well. The desks of clerks and secretaries were arranged to try and mimic the production line, with managers patrolling the floors to make sure everyone was doing their job.
1: Now this kind of controlling system of management is not as explicit today, but its legacy lives on in the fact that in a lot of companies, presenteeism, just seeing whether you are sat in your chair or not, is the number one way that your boss is judging whether you are working hard or not, who gets in the earliest and stays the latest. But in a world where you're not in the office all day, every day, that's no longer an option. Previously, the physical space of the office did a lot of a manager's job for them. Now, companies and managers have to do more work if they can't force everyone to keep coming in. Here's Slack's Sheila Submaranian again.
4: What we're seeing is that organizations that are leading with trust and also measuring success based on outcomes are actually seeing higher engagement among employees. Whereas the traditional way of management was gatekeeping. It was checking in when someone was coming into the office and who was the last to leave, how many hours they were working. And so it's traditionally been activities over outcomes. And in this flexible work environment, companies have to shift their culture to be based on trust, but also reskill their managers to operate from a place of being a coach rather than a gatekeeper.
1: A lot of companies talk about managing by outcomes rather than presenteeism, but it will be a huge change of culture for many companies to do this. And that's not all, because the way that managers are going to have to change doesn't just relate to the rational side of work, which is the job you're paid to do. It's about how we relate to each other as people as well, and as a result, who we hire as managers.
2: So here's a dirty little secret that people don't like to talk about. Uh, Managers actually have no idea what their employees are actually doing, or could do the jobs of their employees.
3: That's Gartner's Brian Kropp again, our man in touch with the world's HR managers. He outlined how the role of the manager has been changing for some years now.
2: Uh, The reality is that technology has changed so much, skill demand has changed so much, tasks have changed so much, that most managers don't know how to do the jobs of their employees anymore. If you put them back in those roles, they would struggle. to to actually do the work eventually they could learn and figure it out but they would struggle to do the work
3: a lot of the tasks that managers used to undertake like approving expense reports or creating work schedules can now be done by technology in theory that leaves managers more time for the human creative side of the job what projects a team or individual should be pursuing who should work with whom how do I get the best out of the people that work for me but there's a problem the people in management roles haven't been hired because they're actually any good at any of those things.
2: In the past, uh, the people that we picked to be managers were the people that did those tasks really well. And then we thought they just teach other people how to do those tasks or measure those people doing those tasks. So given that they don't actually know how to do the work that people on our team are doing, uh, they're just not effective coaches anymore from that perspective. So you put that together. So digitalization and need for empathy, a lack of understanding of what it is that their employees actually do. Uh, The job of what a manager is, is changing a lot. It's going from being kind of a task manager to someone who's much more of an empathetic connector and has to help that employee build the relationships that they need and support them in their life challenges uh, throughout an organization. And what's hard about this is that's a completely different profile of a person. So you know, imagine the comparison between like a boss and a social worker. It's just two different, two different types of people that wanna do that sort of work in a lot of ways. And because of that, uh, a lot of the managers that manage today are not equipped currently to do what's required out of managers going forward, being more empathetic, being a connector, Focusing less on task management, those types of things.
0: We don't have to tell you that the future of work is complicated. Get a partner who can make your team's return to the office simple with Industrious. Industrious has offices, suites and hybrid solutions for companies of all sizes and stages in more than a 100 locations across the US and the UK. Go to industriousoffice.com to discover how Industrious can help bring your team into the future of work. Industrious at industriousoffice.com
3: So thinks Jess Alderson describes how it could work in an ideal world. She has an interesting vantage point on the question of office dynamics, having started an app that matches people based on their personality types, and previously been a researcher at work there, the flexible office arm of commercial real estate advisory firm Savills.
6: Personality types play a huge role. Um, so my friends who are more introverted tend to be like, pretty happy working at home, and even if it's for quite a long time, like it, it, it's not a bad thing for them. As such, like they do, introverts do need social interaction still, but just not to the same extent. But yeah, then I I look at my more extroverted friends and they definitely found it harder. Um, And they're definitely, you know, just keen to go back as quickly as possible.
1: The thing is, companies and managers have got to want to make this change. There's evidence to suggest they don't. Prop said Gartner's research found that only about 50% of the people currently employed in managerial roles are any good at the human, empathetic side of a job, and about half of the managers that aren't any good at it have no interest in learning how to be that kind of manager. But if companies are going to succeed, bosses are going to have to learn how to manage people differently, or companies are going to need to find different managers, because the pandemic has changed how we relate to each other as colleagues and co-workers. And how we think our employer should treat us. There were a lot of negatives to the blurring of the line between work and life that came about as a result of the pandemic, particularly the disappearance of the boundary between work life and home life for those working remotely. A lot of people hate their commute, but at least it provides some sort of firebreak and you're not in the same place in the evening as the place you were when you do your job. Numerous studies have shown that during the pandemic, a majority of white-collar workers put in longer hours, making them more stressed. But that breaking down of the boundaries between work and life can have positives too, if companies and managers can embrace it in the right way. Here's Crop again.
2: You know, one of the things about the pandemic is that we've seen inside each other's homes. Like, you know, we see someone's kids come up to them uh, during the middle of a call and before the pandemic, you would have panicked parents that were like, get out of here. Now they just come up and you know join the call, right? Like, that's totally okay. Uh, we've learned more about the health status of um, uh, uh, our employees in a, in a variety of different ways and being much more responsive and much more aware of what that looks like. We've learned about um, you know, our employees who have parents that have poor health perhaps or whose kids are struggling in school and we're trying to do things to support them. So there's this whole new era of managers where we have to develop a lot of empathy for our employees. And that's the expectation that employees have, that their employer helps them not just with their work challenges, but their life challenges as well. And employees are increasingly comfortable with their employer crossing that line.
3: The switch to a more hybrid way of working has the potential to change the way co-workers interact, to alter the fundamental relationship between companies and workers, to make it something more humane, to move away from the model that was born out of a desire to stop factory workers slacking 100 years ago. If, and it's a big if, the corporate world wants this to happen. So will this new, more understanding relationship between companies and workers stick? As the pain of the pandemic recedes, as we all hope it continues to do, will companies, managers, co-workers retain that empathy that we all felt when for 18 months we looked into each other's houses and saw the lives that we lived outside of work? Gartner's crop thinks for the medium term at least, it's a yes.
2: Long term from now, um, who knows, like I, I certainly learned that predicting beyond a couple of years becomes really, really hard. Uh, but what I do know is that given how tight the labor markets become, given that that genie has been let out of the bottle, given the importance that employers are placing on talent and thinking about the whole experience of employees, uh, it's hard to imagine that's going to go away. Because one of the the biggest lessons that we've learned from uh, this entire process is that we used to think about this as like there's work and there's life and we try to balance them and integrate them or some version of that, but kind of two separate constructs. What we've realized more than anything is that people have a life and work is part of that life just like their family is part of that life, just like their hobbies are part of that life and companies are shifting. So rather than managing the work life experience of their employees, they want to help the life experience of their employees where work is a component of that, not on equal footing with their life. Uh, and given that shift, uh, I don't see it uh, turning around at any point in the next couple of years. You know, maybe four or five years from now when we're all working for our robot overlords, we'll be in that situation, uh, but but not until that comes, uh, I I think where this this empathetic moment has a lot of lasting power, uh, which is good news.
3: Even Anne Helen Peterson, the chronicler of millennial burnout created by the tyranny of the modern corporate world, is optimistic.
5: We're going to look back historically at this moment as a pivot point in terms of how we think about office work and how we think about where work is done. It is wonderful to watch a paradigm kind of dissolved before your eyes. And it wouldn't have happened without COVID, right? And I don't like the phrase silver lining of COVID because I just think it's very weird to think about it that way. I do think that what we are seeing are some understandings about the status quo being dismantled before our eyes and challenged. Next week.
2: There is a minimum emission you need you are going to emit and I think it's misleading to make people believe that you can build a building without emitting carbon. Uh, It's important to be aware that you're emitting carbon because if you're not aware of the damage you're making then you have no incentive to reduce
3: it.
1: This BizNow podcast is produced by me Miriam Hall
3: and me Mike Phillips with script editing by Ethan Rothstein. If you're interested in the history of the office do check out Nicole Saval's book Cubed And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. It helps other people to find us.